Welcome to a new wave of entrepreneurship. I'm Latifa Farah, Associate Creative Producer at Venture for Canada and the producer of a new wave of entrepreneurship. Venture for Canada is a national charity on a mission to foster the entrepreneurial skills and mindsets of young Canadians. Our vision is a Canada where young people can equitably realize their entrepreneurial potential to build the most prosperous place in the world. The focus of this podcast is to hear from changemakers and Canadian entrepreneurs and to learn about how they've developed their entrepreneurial mindset and skills. In season eight, we'll be chatting with CEOs, founders, and successful business leaders about their career journeys. In this episode, we're joined by Desh Deshpande, president and chairman of Spider Group, LLC. Dr. Deshpande founded Cascade Communications and Sycamore Networks and has chaired and funded several other companies. Deshpande is a life member of the MIT Corporation. The Deshpawn Foundation supports social entrepreneurship and provided the founding grant for NSS, Innovation Corps, and Deshpawn Center at MIT. Desh sits down with Scott to discuss what it takes to be an innovative and successful entrepreneur. I am so excited to have Desh Deshpande on Venture for Canada's podcast, A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Today, we're going to be diving into how entrepreneurship can be a tool for creating positive social change around the world. And I think Desh is a perfect person to speak about this topic, given the philanthropic work that he does to promote the development of entrepreneurial skills in Canada, the United States, India, and around the world. Desh, thank you so much for coming on our podcast this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Really looking forward to it. At a very high level, Desh, the term entrepreneurship is one that's used all the time. It's become, to some extent, a little bit of a buzzword. What does being entrepreneurial mean to you? Well, being entrepreneurial is you look at the world and you say it's A, and you say, well, it doesn't have to be A, it can be B, B being a lot better than A. Um, you don't quite know how to get there, but you really believe that B is better than A and you want to get the world to B. And then finding all the things that you need to get to that B is what the entrepreneurial journey is all about. So, you know, the non-entrepreneurial journey is where you learn everything, how to do something, and then somebody hires you as an expert to do that thing, and then you get it done. Uh, entrepreneurial journey always starts with a passion. You know, you're, you're, you're passionate about solving some problem. And that passion does not have to mean that you know how to solve the problem, but the passion will get you there. Do you think that entrepreneurs who are motivated more by the passion of creating positive impact are more successful than entrepreneurs who are more motivated by a desire to make a large amount of money? Well, uh, absolutely. You know, I think when people just want to make money, um, because usually what happens is when you start the journey, there's only three surprises. Number one, it's harder than what you think. Number two, it's going to take longer than what you think. And it's going to take a lot more money than what you think. So there's only bad news once you start the journey. And so if you're not committed to that journey, if you don't have that conviction, most of the people fail and get out. There are one in a million cases where people get lucky and they just become successful, make a lot of money. So there are cases where that happens, but that's very few. Most of the cases when people start because they've seen a friend make a lot of money and they just want to get rich quickly, don't make it. 
more concretely, what do you, what are some examples of different entrepreneurial skills? Well, number one, I think having being optimistic. I, th- I think there's two characteristics that I see in entrepreneurs, which are very important. Number one, entrepreneurs tend to be naive, and you have to be naive. That is, you somehow believe that you can get it done. You know nothing about it, but you think you can get it done. And secondly, they're very optimistic. You know, when something goes wrong, uh, they don't suddenly panic and give up and become depressed and so on. You know, they feel like, hey, tomorrow is going to be better than today. I know tomorrow is going to be better. And, and that's the beauty of being an entrepreneur. You know, when you live your life feeling that tomorrow is going to be better than today, whether it's true or not, doesn't matter. It's a great life because, because you're always looking forward to tomorrow as opposed to getting depressed about the whole thing. So being optimistic and being naive are two characteristics that I see in entrepreneurs which really get them going. Uh, Amos uh, Tversky, who is, was the researcher uh, alongside Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize in, uh, in economics for their work and also related to psychology, uh, he had a funny line where he said that the pessimist uh, suffers twice. Uh, the first time when they think something's going to go wrong, and then the second time when it actually goes wrong. And it's interesting to think about optimism as a protective factor when someone thinks around mental health and resilience, that in essence, the more optimistic you are, the more you're willing to potentially fight against the odds. If the odds are only 10%, uh, but you think they're 80%, then you're going to you know, jump out and, and, uh, and do it. But at the same time, one of the things I'm thinking about, Dash, is how over-optimism can sometimes become a challenge. So if someone is overly optimistic, they can sometimes not see risks that might be apparent. So how do you think an entrepreneur can both be generally on the optimistic side, but not be too optimistic that they lose sight of risks that are right in front of them? Yeah. So, so that's the balance that you have to strike. And and I think you can do it by surrounding yourself with some good people. So what happens is, you know, you have to have a conviction. You have to have a reason as to why you're doing something. And there's about 250 things that can go wrong. And all your friends and well-wishers will ask you not to do it. Because, because not that they don't want you to do it, but just because they feel bad for you. They, they see all the risk, all the everything that can go wrong. And then they say, what do you want to do that? You know, be safe, be happy. And, and so when something goes wrong, the first thing that happens is everybody will say, I told you so, I told you so, you know, so it's very discouraging. And so you need that conviction to keep going. But at the same time, how do you protect yourself from making sure that you're not heading the wrong way? Because I've never seen an entrepreneur who doesn't have conviction because nobody ever comes to you and say, I have a bad idea. They all be, believe that they have a fantastic idea and they just can't understand why the world doesn't think that it's a fantastic idea. And, and so people, so to protect yourself against that heading in the wrong direction, you have a bunch of advisors, you talk to people. And if you hear somebody say, you know what, what you're doing is not right. And let me tell you why. If you hear it from one person, I think you can ignore it. But if you hear it from two people, three people, four people, five people, then I think there's a pattern to it. And then it really calls for stepping back a little bit and looking at it and making sure that you really have thought through it 
and you know how you're going to beat that, the objection that people are coming up with. And if you can't, then you have to pivot. So I think being objective and also having a strong conviction is the biggest challenge. You know, when I was starting my first company, I had about 12 people or so in the first year and, and they would work extremely hard. You know, everybody was so committed and all of us were working really hard, but I made sure that I had at least one advisor come in every year, every month and listen to what we had to say and have them comment on what we're doing. And, and the diff most difficult thing to manage there would be when they criticize and say something is wrong, uh, getting the team to listen in on that criticism was a hard thing because they would say, I'm working so hard. What does that guy know? You know, he doesn't, he doesn't know anything. And, uh, and so being objective and also having that conviction is something that you have to build within your mechanism. Yeah, it's uh, any strength over amplified can become uh, a weakness. And I think to your point, balance uh, is such an important thing as an entrepreneur. Going back a little bit to our discussion around social impact and entrepreneurship, Desh, how do you think entrepreneurial skills can be a tool for creating positive social impact uh, in this world? Well, it's, it's the same thing. It's really not that different because, you know, we talked about how you look at the world and you say the world can be a better place and, and you want to get to that better place. So getting to that better place is again an entrepreneurial journey, particularly if you want to get it to a better place in scale. You know, you want to scale the system, you want to have an impact on a lot of people and so on. So that's a very entrepreneurial thing, but it's nuanced in its own way compared to the regular entrepreneurship as we know it. Yeah, that at the very core, the ability to be entrepreneurial is to motivate to change the world for to make it a better place. And to your point, that can be through for-profit mechanisms, but that can also be through not-for-profit or charitable mechanisms in different kinds of ways. One of the questions that we're asked the most at Venture for Canada is, is entrepreneurship something innate? Is it something that someone is born with? Or are entrepreneurial skills something that someone can develop over time? So Desh, your foundation and your philanthropic work does a ton to promote people to become more entrepreneurial. How do you think somebody can uh, take actions to develop entrepreneurial skills in their lives? Yeah, no, no. It's absolutely something that you learn, you experience. It's, it's not something you're born with. Um, you know, there are three kinds of people in this world. Some people are oblivious to everything. Some people see a problem and complain. Some people see a problem and get all excited about it. And the only difference I've seen between a vibrant community and an impoverished community or a impoverished country, country and vibrant country is a mix of these people. In vibrant places, let's say, for example, MIT, I've been on the board of MIT now for 22 years, every kid is dropping in the best to solve some problem. In fact, their problem is not having good enough problems to solve. But the side effect of that culture is that no problem hangs around in those communities too long because somebody's going to grab it. And so it's a very vibrant community, vibrant environment. In impoverished communities, problems get, get deadlocked. They become chronic. And a few people try to solve it, and they cannot solve it. Uh, so they feel victimized. They feel helpless. 
And so they start complaining. So complaining becomes the dominant culture of an impoverished community. And, and slowly bringing about that cultural change and starting with maybe five people and showing them how they can be successful in solving a problem, give them the additional help that they need to solve some problem. And, and once people get the taste of solving a problem, they will never go back and become complainers again because it's no fun being a complainer. It's so much more fun solving problems, getting up in the morning, being excited about what you're doing and so on. So you start with five people and then 50 people then 500 people. At some point, the critical mass takes over and that becomes the dominant culture. Entrepreneurship is something that becomes addictive over time. To your point, the more that you get a taste of what it, uh, is involved in building something and creating something from the ground up, the more that you want to continue to do it in your life. And I completely agree. It's at the core of why Venture for Canada exists is I believe anyone can be entrepreneurial and that everyone should be entrepreneurial in some kind of way. And it's absolutely a learned uh, behavior. To what extent do you think the tr traditional school system uh, throughout the world, so be it in India, Canada, the United States, can sometimes crush young people's entrepreneurial potential? Yeah. So we talked about how entrepreneurship is all about solving a problem, right? And that's what education is all about. In fact, what do you do in education? Essentially, you teach something and you give problems to solve and students go home and solve the problems, right? I mean, that's what, and that's how we examine people and everything else. It's all about solving problems. But there's a subtle difference between the two approaches. Let's say in a classroom, I teach Pascal theorem, and then I give you 10 problems to solve. You go home and you're supposed to solve those 10 problems. But when you're solving those 10 problems, you'll be very constrained in your thinking. You'll constantly be saying, how do I use Pascal theorem to solve the problem, right? Whereas when you fall in love with a problem, you're not restricted by what solutions you're gonna to use to solve that problem. So finding, falling in love with a problem and then learning whatever it takes to solve that problem is a, is a, is a new approach to learning. You know, all time ago, particularly when the world is changing this fast, you can't learn everything and then start doing things. And also knowledge is free these days, right? I mean, it's so accessible on the internet and everything else that what we really need to teach people is to become passionate about things, to fall in love with problems, and then do what it takes to solve those problems. In fact, we run this program for college kids in India and their t-shirt says, problems start with they, solutions start with I. So you can, you, you just notice whatever problem you want in the society and you say, I'm gonna solve this. And then it's amazing how the same kids who are so passive suddenly get energized and, and learn whatever they need to learn, raise resources, whatever they need to actually solve their problem. And they feel so empowered once they do something like that, that they'll never go back and be the old selves again. Self-efficacy, which is the ability to believe that you have the ability to do a specific uh, thing, which is in essence what you're talking about, Dash, is something that is so inherent to entrepreneurial success. And a challenge is this, that so many young people can sometimes lack the self-efficacy. They don't believe they can become entrepreneurs, which is why I think entrepreneurship education programs are so important, that if you can 
give people a sandbox that is a relatively low risk opportunity and it can get a little taste and then they start taking a little bit bigger risks and bigger risks and bigger risks. And then all of a sudden, maybe one day they run a big company or a big organization that they've created from scratch. So this is a great segue to, for our listeners to learn a little bit more about the philanthropic initiatives that you run uh, around the world. And you're very unique in the sense that you uh, kind of have your, uh, you're very involved in three different countries, uh, Canada, United States, and uh, India. And then you also have involvements in, in other places as well. Can you describe a little bit, what is the focus of your philanthropic initiatives and foundations uh, around the world? Okay, so you know our first company went public in '94, so we set up the foundation in '95. So it's been a journey of over 25 years, and the way the model has developed is that there's seven billion people in the world, two billion people have disposable income, five billion don't have disposable income, and solving their problems is what economy is all about, entrepreneurship is all about, and when you solve the problems for the two billion people who have disposable income, it's entrepreneurship. When you solve the problems of the bottom 5 billion people, it's social entrepreneurship. And, and, but there's a subtle difference when you want to compete in that 2 billion people economy. It's very competitive because people have disposable income, they have options. So innovation becomes very important, and that has to meet relevance to have an impact. So, uh, so that was our first big philanthropic initiative which we started in 2000, 22 years ago. We put about $20 million into MIT and set up a Dishpande Center for Technological Innovation. And the idea there was, instead of innovators innovating the whole thing and then looking for opportunities, you connect them to problems as they're innovating so that when they come out with an idea, it has a better way to have an impact. And then we introduced that as a, a national program in the United States, which is called i which is now creating thousands of companies with the research that the government is funding. And, and we're trying to duplicate that in Canada and India. But all of that effort, it helps mostly the people in the top 2 billion people. But there is bottom 5 billion people. In India, that would be like 20%, 80%. In Canada and US, it would be 80%, 20% for being for in the bottom. But for the bottom people, it's a little bit more, the equation gets turned around. It's relevance plus innovation is equal to impact, meaning you know, their risk tolerances are very different. So you have to co-create the solution with them, build the capacity within those communities to accept those solutions. And then you slowly start injecting innovation. And as you start scaling it, you'll get an opportunity to become more and more innovative and use more advanced techniques to scale those solutions and make those things you know, more affordable, bigger, faster, cheaper, all that stuff. In uh, the pre-version of this interview, you talked a little bit about some of the challenges in the nonprofit sector around not doing things that are scalable, of doing small scale activities that might help some people, but that, that are very challenging to, to replicate. Why do you think that this challenge exists sometimes in the nonprofit sector? So if you look at India, Canada, US, you know, we have millions of NGOs and most of them are non-performing assets. Why? Because in the for-profit sector, doesn't matter how crazy your idea is, you get a year, two years, three years to finally come up with an idea for which somebody is willing to pay you. 
it has to be relevant to their problems and it has to solve a problem. And that feedback loop is extremely powerful because number one, it keeps the companies grounded and also it creates competition. And so you have to execute just because you have version 1.0, you can't survive. You have to come up with 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. You have to keep up with the competition. So in the for-profit sector, you have execution excellence and you have performing assets. If you if you're not, you go either bankrupt or chapter 11 or somebody acquires you, somehow the asset gets uh, distinguished. Uh, the, uh, but the thing in the for-profit sector is that in your effort to chase the top line, the bottom line, you may lose your compassion. You may lose compassion for the people, you may lose compassion for the environment. In the nonprofit sector, compassion is given because without compassion, why would you even start anything? But the money, source of money is not directly related to the people that you benefit. And so you don't have the feedback loop of whether what you're doing is really useful or not. And so a lot of times the organizations get disconnected from what they're doing, they just survive. And so there is no relationship between the impact and whom they're working with, with the source of money. And so very few of them, if they're lucky, get to version 1.0, but they'll never get to 2.0, 3.0, 4.0 because they don't have a balance sheet, they don't have the resources, they don't have research and development. There's no competition. And so in some ways, the social sector is a land, land of the living dead because there's no mergers and acquisitions, there's no chapter 11. So you get a lot of millions of these organizations that are very subpar in their performance. That's a really interesting argument. And I haven't necessarily heard it specifically articulated that way, but it's an interesting to think about the kind of zombie nonprofits that do exist. Like they just float around and they do the same thing, but they don't really innovate or, or grow. One of the things that came to mind as a question, Dash, is what about the charities and nonprofits that do grow, that do become like Partners in Health, for instance, which is a massive uh, international health uh, NGO founded actually in Boston uh, area uh, and the work of Dr. Paul Farmer and his various uh, associates. What distinguishes those nonprofits that do scale and create global impact? It's a relentless focus on the customers. You know, the, you have to somehow artificially create that pull. In fact, that's one of the principles that we use in our own uh, work as well. For example, one of the programs we do in India is, is there's a lot of farmers who have two acres, five acres of land. In fact, that's majority of the farmers in India and their incomes are very low. And, and there's enough rain, there's 50, 60, 70 centimeters of rain but there's no water when they need it. And so we came up with this program called the farm ponds. We dig a hole that's 100 feet by 100 feet by 12 feet. And that's enough rainwater to irrigate five acres of land and double and triple the income right away. So we've done 7,000 of them and we're doing another 100,000 now. And what happens there is that the farmer actually pays 20% upfront and he pays and he, we get him a loan for the other 80% from the banks. And then we have a lot of innovation there. Uh, we, we have a rural transmission technology center. We track about 30 satellites. We collect about petabytes of data. 
And so given any piece of land, we can recreate the history of that land from a water perspective for the last 12 years. So we can ideally locate that farm pond. We use the same center to run the logistics to build the farm ponds and then monitor the crop, make sure the farmer actually pays the money back and establishes his credit rating and so on. So it, it, it you know, so, you know, being in Boston and running this program in India, I feel good that the program is good because there's a big lineup of farmers, 100,000 farmers who want the solution and are willing to pay for it, right? So creating that, that feedback loop, and in some cases, you can actually have them pay for the whole thing. In some cases, you can have them pay a part of it. If even if they're extremely poor, they cannot pay at all, at least have some skin in the game. Because when people have skin in the game, it brings number one, the dignity. And number two, it brings in that feedback loop. They have a voice in what you're doing. And, and so I think somehow bringing that relentless focus on the customer is what distinguishes good nonprofits from not so good nonprofits. Um so, Dash, you were an advisor to President Obama on innovation policies. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about your work is that you deliver a lot of programs through your foundation and you're involved a lot at the micro level, but you also do a lot of work at the, the macro level in terms of thinking about what are some of the policy structures that governments can pursue to foster more innovation and more entrepreneurship. Given your work uh, in the with the Obama administration uh, and also your experience with other administrations and governments around the world, what do you think are some of the principal policies that governments should consider in how to foster entrepreneurship and innovation? Yeah. So, what what do you need to have a good entrepreneurial system? First of all, you need entrepreneurs. You need mentors. You need good ideas. You need access to capital and access to market. So. If the policies can focus on facilitating all those five, I think, I think you can actually create an ecosystem that's pretty meaningful. And, and most of the countries now are sort of getting there in terms of creating that ecosystem for technology, uh, but you know, in pockets, you know, whether it's Silicon Valley or Boston, uh, in Canada, it's just a few places. So you need to spread that thing across but even more so, I think this other thing we talked about, social entrepreneurship, uh, governments need to create uh, policies uh, for, for that segment as well. You know, when I was starting my first company in 1987 in Boston, there were only five or six entrepreneurs in Massachusetts. And so the ecosystem was not there. But you fast forward 40 years, it's amazing how developed the ecosystem is in Boston for high-tech entrepreneurs. If they have an idea, and if it's somewhat meaningful, they will be successful. But that ecosystem does not exist for the people at the bottom that we talked about. And my hope is that it won't take another 40 years, but in 20 years, we can find a way to set up a system for them so that they have incubators, they have training, they have access to capital and access to market. So I think the governments, policies should be very careful in making sure that they're not in the business of picking winners and losers, but just facilitating so that a lot of people are playing the game. Because in entrepreneurship, 
it doesn't matter how smart you are, you can never, never, never guarantee that somebody is going to be successful. Failure is a big part of that entrepreneurship. So the only way you become successful policymaker is by creating policies that enable a lot of people to play the game. And also to make sure that you really have a mechanism so that people, if they fail, they fail small and they fail fast so that uh, they have an opportunity to pivot and move on and do something else. One hotly debated topic is whether universal basic income is a tool that can increase entrepreneurial activity with some arguing that universal basic income, which for our listeners to define it is giving everyone a, a basic income to, to live, uh, that that has the potential to unleash uh, entrepreneurial activity, that in essence, if everyone has a, a little bit more of a safety net, people are more, more willing to take risks. On the flip side, some people criticize universal basic income, arguing that it would demotivate people, that it would result in less entrepreneurship. What are your thoughts? Do you think universal basic income can be a tool for increasing entrepreneurship? Well, I think universal income is a must for very basic needs in life. You know, if people are unsure whether they're going to get two meals a day, it's very hard for them to become entrepreneurs, right? I mean, you, you need some basic needs to be covered. Beyond that, I don't know if that's, a, you know, giving a lot more money would, would help. Uh, I think it's, uh, at that point, it becomes a cultural game. It becomes a game of people getting a taste of it. You know, what I'm finding, you know, with the program we've done, e for all we have 1,100 companies now. And, uh, but these people, uh, they want to live a life like that. They want to make something out of their life. They want to solve a problem. And, and, and those people, uh, they find it to be fun. I don't think they'll stop doing it if you just said, hey, I'm going to give you a little bit more money every month. Stop doing this. I don't think entrepreneurs would accept that and say, okay, I'll take a little bit more money, but I will not do anything. So I think a lot of it is the policies have to be focused on giving people an opportunity to taste it a little bit. Yeah, it's a really interesting point about the importance of a culture of innovation. And someone we recently interviewed is former Governor General of Canada, David Johnston. And he has a culture of innovation index that his foundation, the Rideau Hall Foundation runs. And we recently spoke with him about the importance of fostering culture of innovation. And that's ultimately what drives entrepreneurship within a country. Desh, what do you think are the key aspects of a culture of innovation? Well, I, th I think it's, it's a lot of it is uh, a peer uh, influence. You know, it's, it's more being in a community of change makers. So uh, in fact, I've spoken to David um, about the work that he's doing with the First Nation and so on. And, and I think what we have to do, which is hard for policymakers to do, is when you go to a community, you want everybody to do well, and also you want to help the people who are most disadvantaged. But in some ways, that puts you back a little bit. You know, I think, I think the approach that I tend to take is that I say, hey, let me go to this community and pick and choose five people or 10 people who are more likely to succeed because it's an easier case. And then you make them successful. And those 10 people will then inspire another 50. Then you help those 50. 
and then that will become 500. So it's a little bit more of trying to pick, to create winners uh, who are a little bit easier. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a, an approach that we use in a lot of the work that we're doing in India as well. Um, a nonprofit, it's very unnatural for a nonprofit. You know, nonprofits always want to help the people who are most disadvantaged. But helping the people who are most disadvantaged is the hardest problem. So if you can't even solve simple problems, solving the hardest problem is very hard. So you have to be humble about the capability of the solutions that you have to apply to the right set of people. So I think the best way to bring about the cultural change is to first create a few winners, which will then lead to a few more, and then a few more, a few more. That's what happened in the tech entrepreneurship, right? I mean, when I was starting in 87, there were maybe five, six, 10 entrepreneurs, and now there's thousands. And, and but, but you, you do have to make sure that there is some successful cases in the community for other people to say, hey, I can do this too, so. Seeing role models who have been able to succeed in a specific uh, sector that you're desiring to, to succeed in is something that's so critical to inspire people. And in particular, it's uh, important for folks often to see role models who look like them, who have similar experiences uh, to them. And I know a significant focus of your E for All initiative is to disproportionately work with uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, BIPOC entrepreneurs across uh, the United States. How do you think philanthropy and how, how does your, the work of your foundation uh, in terms of promoting entrepreneurial skills development also advance goals such as racial equity? Well, I mean, you know, people were being left behind. If you want to help them, uh, you cannot convert them into uh, a venture capital model or something where you have a big return on investment and so on. So you do have to invest in bringing about the cultural change we talked about. So, um, you know, we've been working on this for 12 years now, and we're at a point where we have 1,100 companies, 75% of them are owned by women, 40% of them were previously unemployed, 70% are BIPOC. But it's a lot of hand-holding to get them going. And, and we are on track right now to scale it to 50,000 businesses by 2030. And if we are successful to get it up to 50,000, I think it'll, the system will automatically get built in terms of incubators, access to capital, access to markets and everything else. And also, I think you talked about policies and my hope is that at that point, we should be able to talk to the policymakers and say, hey, you know, for example, US alone, spends about $4 billion a year in uh, skills training, jobs, jobs training. And the old model is that they would go train people, big companies would come and they would hire all these people. That isn't happening anymore. The new model is gonna be maybe 15, 20 job seekers for every job maker. So we have to take that $4 billion and maybe put five to 10% of that money in job makers train the job makers within the communities. And so the philanthropic money can, can prove the model. Uh, so if we are successful in getting to 50,000 people, which is primarily with philanthropic money, then it's so obvious that it's a doable thing and it's a good thing to do that then the policymakers can take over and, and deploy the government resources to scale it. So 
I'm a big believer that the philanthropic money should have the proof of concept. And when it's obvious that it works, then the policymakers need to take it over and the government should then use their resources to scale it nationwide. It's funny, that approach, which by the way, is very intuitive and makes sense, is actually sometimes the opposite of how it works in Canada, where government will fund the new thing and then there's an expectation that it becomes more sustainable uh, over time. And I like your approach. I, I think it makes a lot of sense because often private philanthropists have way more capacity for risk than if you're a policymaker, where if you fund something and it doesn't work out, people are and especially democracies, sometimes not as tolerant of governments failing versus a philanthropist is accountable to themselves, not necessarily to, to voters. So I think it's a really interesting point. You know, Scott, it's a, it's a proven model in the for-profit sector. In the for-profit sector, if you looked at the companies 50 years ago, you'd have a few large companies and the innovation moved at a certain pace. What happens now is that innovation happens is rampant among startups because every startup has some new idea. Some work, some don't work. But what happens is that a few of them will go public and become very large companies. But most of the times, bigger companies embrace innovation from these little startups, right? So it's well proven that big companies cannot innovate. It's only these small companies that can innovate. So in the nonprofit sector, government is probably the bigger than the biggest company that exists. And so they're trying to innovate is, is like a, is an impossible thing. They should not even try to innovate. So they should let the, you know, uh, the nonprofits innovate, but they should be on the lookout for merchants and acquisitions, just like big companies. Big companies count around for innovation. So when they see something working, then they should embrace it and make it a part of the policy. Policymakers are so far removed from the real problem that there's no way they can come up with solutions or innovate. The role of policymakers then is to be like venture capitalist scouts looking all around the world and, and trying to find those social innovations that are creating a huge amount of impact and then to say, that's a great idea. Let's scale that up. Let's try to 100x that if it is actually replicable. One thing I'd love to, to dive a little deeper in is you mentioned a couple of times in this interview the need for handholding uh, in terms of participants in the early days of the program uh, as relates to your philanthropic initiatives. What kind of handholding? What is that early stage support that you provide to these participants? Well, you know, for every E for All entrepreneur, uh, we have three mentors, and the you know mentors in the high tech entrepreneurship is is people asking tough questions about you know their competitiveness and competition and all that kind of stuff. But in the E for All entrepreneurship, it's a little bit more providing the support that you need. You know, most of the time they're single mothers, they don't have a job, they, their problems are just huge. And so providing the support and encouragement and constantly you have to be saying, I know you can do it. I know you can do it. And, and then providing whatever help that they need in, in, a, in a small subtle way, because you know, a lot of them don't even know what a loan is or what a market is, what a revenue is, what a profit is what a credit is. So just being very relevant in terms of the support that you provide to them is, 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 is uh, you know, it's a unique mentor. I mean, a mentor who's been successful building high tech and large companies, but now is learning how to help these people is, is very satisfying. And we, we are able, so far we're able to find three mentors 
for every entrepreneur that we uh, mentor. And now uh, we are up to maybe about 500 companies a year, new companies that get started. And we're hoping we can scale that to larger numbers. Your foundation also supports various initiatives around the world around entrepreneurship education. You fund post-secondary institutions in Canada, uh, such as the bon Pond uh, Despondé Center at the University of New Brunswick, uh, the Dunedin Despondé Center at Queen's University, uh, the Despondé Center at MIT. You also support the Despondé Symposium, which is a gathering of different uh, post-secondary institutions working in entrepreneurship education across uh, North America and the world. And you also have a similar conference in India. Why do you support these kind of initiatives around entrepreneurship education at post-secondary institutions? And how can entrepreneurship centers in a post-secondary context play a, a significant role in helping people take entrepreneurial risks? Well, you know, it, it's, it's, that's the essence of education. You, you, you don't, you, you know, you're not bringing education students into these educational institutions so that you can teach them just civil engineering or mechanical or nursing or literature or something like that. You really want to make them into change makers. You want them so that they can learn to fall in love with the problem they want to solve, a new world that they want to see, and then use their skills and domain knowledge to bring about that change. You know, because the world as, as you can see within the last 20, 30 years in our own lives, the world has changed dramatically. And that pace is only going to pick up. And the world is going to change faster and faster and faster. And every human being gets one of the two options. Either you can grudgingly accept the change or you can willingly change, lead the change. And education is all about getting people to lead the changes so that we get to a better place. And, and, and then, so that intention, desire, and the ability to lead a change and then accumulate whatever you need to lead that change becomes even more important in education than ever before. To wrap things up, Desh, if you were talking to an entrepreneurial 20-year-old student at MIT or Queen's University or Indian Institute of Technology, Madras, and you were to give them advice, and let's say they're very socially motivated, they want to create social impact, they want to be an entrepreneurial uh, innovator who's making the world a better place. What high level advice would you give to this person as they set out to begin their careers? Well, number one, it's a fantastic career to have because, you know, I think every day morning you get up and you're excited. And I feel that if you can live every day of your life so that you're excited about the day when you get up in the morning, there's nothing more to life than that. And, and that's what being an entrepreneur is all about. You go through a roller coaster ride, but it's exciting. And, and it's, it's an opportunity that you, know, you can only have as an entrepreneur. So being an entrepreneur is, is a, it's a lifestyle, it's a career, it's what you choose to do. It's not so much to be successful in one thing and you become famous or rich and happily live ever after. In fact, you don't happily live ever after unless you just continue that journey. Uh, and so I think I would encourage everybody to go on that journey. But if you want to do social entrepreneurship, in any entrepreneurship, understanding your customer base is the number one thing that you have to do. If you don't understand the customer, you cannot be successful. 
And, and it's a little bit easier in the regular entrepreneurship because most of the times you're coming up with solutions for the people who look like you, who live like you. And so it's easier to relate to those problems. If you want to be a social entrepreneur and, and you, know, you are highly educated, you're privileged, and you're trying to help those people who are not a part of that economy, it's hard for you to understand that customer base unless you actually take an extra effort. So take the extra effort that you need to actually go be with those customer base, understand their customers, co-create the solution with them, build the capacity, and then use all your entrepreneurial skills to scale those solutions so that, you know, not, not tens, but thousands and millions and billions of people can benefit from your efforts. Desh, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you. One of the things that I have really enjoyed in getting to know you through this interview, as well as uh, some pre-conversations, is that you are somebody who has had an incredible amount of entrepreneurial success, but also has maintained a very strong sense of humility and uh, calmness and a kind of a sereneness that is quite unique uh, amongst uh, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs. And I really appreciate you and the work that you do to promote entrepreneurial skills development in Canada, uh, the United States, India, and around the world. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. And, and keep up the good work. Uh, you know, I'm always with you because you're doing the same thing that we want to do as well. Spread the word of entrepreneurship and make it a better world. So thank you. Thank you very much for everything you do. That's it for this week's episode of A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Stay connected with us via our socials and our email list. Subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. If you have feedback on today's episode, tweet us at Venture for Canada, that is Venture for Canada, or email us at podcast at venturefocanada.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'm Latifah Farah, and that was Scott Sturrett. Until next time, stay safe, stay motivated, and stay grateful.